All right, I'm Sarah, focused on Russian foreign policy, migration, and things like that. I'm Matt. I'm focused on Southern African history, politics, and economics in general. I'm Corey, focused on Central Asia and the Caucasus security policy. We're three friends who met in grad school, decided to turn our WhatsApp group chat into a podcast called Spicy World. We also invite friends with fresh views to talk about policy, history, international affairs, and current events. This is our year in review episode. We made, this is our 30th episode of the year. We're very proud of what we put together. We talked to a lot of really interesting and smart colleagues and friends and uh, academics and experts in various fields. And uh, this is a, a compilation of some of our, of our best and most interesting uh, discourses that we, we, we've collected and we thought we would th- throw together as, as our year in review. We also want to talk about if we had any any themes that we learned from the year, like from. So I'll give an example for myself. Like I feel like I, ever since we started doing this this year, I've the one thing that comes up more and more for me is the geography element of international relations, which I maybe I didn't think about it quite as much before doing the podcast. Like for example where a country is physically located on the map, how much that plays into their international strategy and stuff. That was something that I learned throughout the year because it kept kept coming up in a lot of our topics. Did either of you have anything that you felt like came up across the year from doing the podcast? I think it was another, another banner year for uh, not America. And it was a, it was a banner year for, for our favorite. I think the, the man of the year again was, was our buddy Vlad who just went, went from strong suit to strong suit. We couldn't stop talking about him. Not Vlad, Volva. <laughs> Volva, excuse me. I know that's, that's such a, it's such a, uh, <laughs> that, that's a really elementary mistake. I just made that. It's true. Well, I feel like he came up a lot the first half of the year, but I haven't heard about him since summer. Right? So I heard that wrong? he's, in, I heard that they created a bubble for him, that they properly created like a, a massive state apparatus bubble where like, if you want to get near the sky, you got to quarantine for two weeks and like all the staff, everyone who's necessary to run this, you know, to steer the ship is inside this bubble. And that's that, like they weren't taking any chances with it. Yeah. So you're, Oh, I was going to say, so your takeaway for the year is your spicy world man of the year or person of the year is Putin (laughs) is your takeaway is how I'm hearing that. (laughs) Uh, He might, he might be, I'll have to think a little bit. Sure, sure. See if there's a if there's a better person. We'll come back to you later. Certainly, he was he was he he kept popping up all year long. Yeah, well, Sarah, it's, it's also um, I think that you probably haven't heard like much from him himself because the focus for him this year has been all on positive news. Like you know, he was the one that was able to announce the first vaccine and everything like that so but then when things go downhill that's when you see these mass layoffs of his cabinet members did you have any takeaways this year sarah yeah i think um you know speaking with some of our guests there's and uh several of them brought this up including hans and karina that there is this geopolitical and local divide that 
I would be interested in exploring more on, on the podcast and everything um, in future episodes. You see it, especially in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and sort of the geopolitical discussions around it that we're able to have and then the local effects. Um, so it's just the, the balance of giving those two groups um, room to speak. Yeah, I think I recognize that in the in Shingi's episode in Zimbabwe as well, talking about their Zimbabwe Lives Matter protest, and then also the government's, you know, demonization of the West because of the sanctions and 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 all of that too. I think you're right. There's there's a lot of that was certainly was a theme that we talked about a lot this year. Yeah, the the online pundit class, the Twitter class of people who have who feel like they are experts on the subject versus just the people who are every day involved in the subjects, but maybe aren't necessarily tweeting about it constantly. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. the two different, the two different approaches or, or experiences. We're in the Twitter class, right? We are absolutely <laughs> in the Twitter class, <laughs> undoubtedly. The, the Twitter slash podcast class <laughs> of peoples. Okay. Which, well, which I'm sure should be, should be done away with at some point, but for now. <laughs> with that, let's get into some clips. Yeah. So the first clip we're going to start with is Thomas Weir, who specializes in Caucasian linguistics, among other languages. What's your favorite Georgian word? Uh, so uh, actually, I have so there's there's one that also has a super long uh, consonant cluster, which is Vepulneli, which means someone who tears tigers apart. And it has uh, 11 consonants in a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it makes like a really good t-shirt. So, because it has all the consonants all in a row. Who is a person that tears tigers apart? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a kind of an artificial, okay. <laughs> this is an artificial word. I think someone was like, you know, trying to figure out like, what is the longest you know, word that we could come up with? So I think that's kind of how that, that, that arose. Okay. I, don't, okay. I don't think it was like a naturally occurring <laughs> specimen of Georgian speech. Let's put it that way. Uh, you, you, want, you want to know what my favorite, favorite Georgian word is uh, for, for all those out there is, is zeg. Z-E-G, zeg. <laughs> Which means wow. the day after tomorrow. Nice. Which is which is super useful because a lot of things end up happening yeah. the day after tomorrow. <laughs> so. It's just such a great word that we don't have, and it's just so terrific. Zeg. So I found out that we do actually have that word, I think, in English. Which is? I believe it is aftmorrow. Hmm. Um, okay. Which is obviously anachronistic or archaic, excuse me. But um, I believe, yeah, we, I didn't realize that until some time after. But, so uh, your commentary was very weak. Yeah, yeah, saying. bad. Yes, especially. I mean, everyone's commentary on linguistics <laughs> is weak when, when you know, before or after Thomas Weir's. Um, <laughs> Tom, Tom, obviously, is a good friend of mine. I see him obviously more often before the pandemic than. Uh, currently, but he does the great uh, weekly Georgian etymology word of the week on his Twitter page. And every so often, every so often, some some foolish, foolish soul will uh, will dare to say something um, 
just factually inaccurate. And uh, Tom, Tom comes down with the full weight of thousands of years of linguistic like rigor and academic knowledge behind it and just hits them with this Thor-like hammer of knowledge. And it is one of the greatest things to watch on the internet ever. Um, <laughs> just, 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 just seeing Tom Weir drop, drop knowledge on people about, ling- about dead languages or near dead <laughs> languages is, is one of my pure joys in life. <laughs> okay, this is a great story uh, that Max has told us about uh, bond markets of times past and great international swindlers and just a really entertaining tale that I had not heard about, but uh, I think is it could you know, has lots and lots of, of replayability. The story of Gregor McGregor. But the Gregor McGregor story is truly amazing. <laughs> what I don't I don't know the story. Enlighten us, please. Tell us the story. <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, uh, so Gregor McGregor was a um, British. Uh, he, he was in, in the British. Military. Scottish, I think. He was Scottish, yes, but he fought briefly in some of the uh, you know, okay in the Napoleonic Wars. But I think he was in like the Spanish theater or something. You know, relatively minor. He then went over to Latin America to seek his fortune, and ultimately ended up um, fighting alongside. Um, Bolivar. Uh, he famous. He he was a very bad military leader, actually, and <laughs> was very famous for leading a successful retreat. Um, and he had a brief a career uh, in essentially piracy, as you know, Britain was um, allowing privateers to go after Spanish ships and assets in the Americas at that time. Um, and he had briefly seized an island in, in the Caribbean, and then ultimately lost it. He tried to get funding in the U.S. He fell out with all the people there, but he had this beautiful um, wife, who, if I remember correctly, was actually a relative of Bolivar's, um, and, you know, had a known military career and came back to the U.K. at the same time that the first Latin American countries, which were not officially recognized as sovereign by Britain at the time, uh, but everybody kind of knew it was happening. They just didn't want war with Spain over it, but, you know, they knew that it was in Britain's interest. They started borrowing on the debt markets here. There was a huge boom, and um, Gregor McGregor returned right this time and he said the king of the mosquito coast which is roughly um in honduras today um has ennobled me as the cazique of a country called poye um and i've built a small settlement there and he raised tons of money from debtors from private bond markets here in the uk and even financed two ships to to try to go over and settle it which both ended in complete disaster because the locals are obviously unaware of this fictitious agreement and there were no provisions for them or town that he had promised um and then eventually a message got back to the uk he fled and went to paris and did the same scam again and so the map i just got is actually a map someone else made as a um as, as uh, you know, uh, part of an atlas of the Americas that includes not only Poyers, but its constitution for, um, you know, information. So clearly he convinced a lot of people, raised a bunch of debts there again, um, eventually was exposed, but was able ultimately to return to um, Caracas, where he lived out uh, his days on a general's pension. Uh, and to this day, if you go to the Monument of the Heroes in, in Caracas, um, very large um, uh set of monuments to the Bolivarian heroes. His name is still inscribed there. I love that story. I had never heard of that until he told us this. And then it, it popped up a few more times this year for me, I guess. And some other people must have done whole podcasts about him uh, somewhere. Yeah. Within the uh, sovereign debt world, whatever that's called, sovereign 
some people who love that stuff. He is pretty legendary and, and people in the finance world, like try to buy, they still exist. The bonds that he issued the paper bonds, uh, they they float around on eBay and places like that. So, so finance nerds and old school econ nerds like to collect that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's a, it's a classic, classic tale of swindling. Yeah. I was thinking about this episode and just wondering, you know, who would be like a modern day Gregor McGregor? Elon Musk. <laughs> I was, I was literally thinking, yeah, something along the lines of a Tesla. But who knows? Maybe I mean, maybe Tesla's. I mean, the question is: Is Tesla or is Elon Musk the next Thomas Edison or Rockefeller, or is he the next Gregor McGregor? Time will. Or is, or is the next, or is Gregor McGregor more like a like an Eric Prince type character? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's more like it because it's not. There's a there's a martialness to it. I mean, he was he yeah he you know he fought in wars. He wasn't just like a financier kind of guy. He actually got his hands dirty. Right, right. You think that, do you think that Paul Manafort would be like a modern day McGregor McGregor? Oh, that's, yes. That's, that's better. Good. That's really, really good. Like just oh. pardoned for his foreign contacts that he did not report. It's just shady deals, just selling bridges that he doesn't own, you know, just like classic, just huckster moves. Which is so much more difficult today, obviously, than 100 or 200 years ago. But back then, I don't know how you would trust anybody. That, that was wild. I agree. Like, how do you, but, but people's eyes are bigger than their, than their stomach, like, throughout time. Like, if you tell someone a story, they're they are going to choose to not do their due diligence if that's, if they want the story to be true enough, you know, like people convince yeah. themselves. That's like half the work of being like a con man. It's like, no, 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 you're going to, you're going to get greedier than you should be. And that's why you're going to do my job for me. And he had some street cred with his military experience. So people were like, Oh, he's an honorable guy. He's like, well regarded. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. His whole thing, though, I think that that like the the kicker on his thing is he sends like the the group of people like to this fake country under the premise that there's all this stuff waiting for them, and there wasn't, and then he does it again. <laughs> <laughs> he just does the same trick twice, which the first time it led dozens, if not hundreds, of people to their deaths. <laughs> he just pulled the same move twice. Okay, so moving on to the next clip. So when we had Bernie Moore on to talk about. Namibian in history, we went off on a little section talking about the independence movements in Angola, South Africa, and Namibia. And Bernie shared with us an enlightening little gem that none of us had heard of before about this kind of like covert meeting between, I don't know, the, the who's who of top capitalists around the world. So let's take a listen. Um, there's, there's a, a really uh, sexy and horrifying meeting which took place in uh, 1983 in the southeast of Angola, a place called Jamba. It was known as the Jamba Jamboree, or the Democratic International Congress. Jamba was the seat of Savimbi's movement, which was looking to get more money from Reagan. So Savimbi invited uh, all of these uh, movements that were going to eventually be supported by Reagan. The, the leader of the Contras was there, the leader of the Mujahideen was there, 
the leader of a number of Southeast Asian movements, right-wing Southeast Asian movements, all came to this little tiny corner of Angola to meet with representatives from the CIA who were looking to change the legislation to enable uh, the U.S. government to fund these sorts of movements. Um, and of course, uh, Oliver North was there and, and other, other co- uh, individuals, such as even the CEO of Rite Aid was there. So, you know, it was a, a little uh, Jack Abramoff as well. So you have you have quite a lot of a of a who's who of, of of shady dealers, and what this eventually led to though was all of these movements getting together with representatives from the security forces, including the South African security forces, in order to say, okay, if we are to keep communism out of Southern Africa, we need more weapons, and you see an intensification of the war occurring in in which. Angola gets stinger missiles and other forms of weaponry from the American government, uh, the, the UNITA in Angola, if, if I may clarify. And so the, 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 when UNITA in South Africa and the United States team up, so does SWAPO and Cuba and the Soviet Union. And you see this war becoming much more bloody, much more violent, and uh, leading to... Uh, a larger proliferation of landmines throughout the territory, all sorts of, of of problems leading up to the present day. What's what? This is like uh, this is like that meeting, like the the Appalachian meeting that like the mafia had in like the fifties, where just all of these yeah shady right wing characters get together and plot how they will like do crimes in the future. <laughs> That's basically nice. what this was, right? I mean, it's, it's extremely sad to the consequences of just pouring money into it. I don't know. I can't even comprehend it. You know, I don't know. It's just too much for me to comprehend to be like, let's just give so much money and missiles and weapons. And yeah, it was know. a different era. They were just so afraid of the Soviet Union. Right. Anyone with like any crazy idea as to like how to take on international socialism it was like, oh, well, here's a briefcase full of cash. Like, do it. Like, make it happen. Yeah. So continuing with some of our favorite, you know, unknown, little known history facts, we're going to go with an episode we did with Shingi uh, on Zimbabwean history and talk about one of the little known leaders of the Zimbabwe independence movement. Then in 1963, they split due to ideological differences and the Zimbabwean African National Union is founded. And this is the party that forms the, you know, the party ruling party right now is ZANU-PF, but it's really, it's really the party that was birthed on that day uh, under the leadership of Ndabaningi Sitole. I'm working with a group right now. I'm working with his grandson right now because now he's been written out of history because he ended up having... Um, uh, being in opposition to Mugabe, so he doesn't get celebrated like he deserves to as the as the father of the struggle. So I'm working with his grandson right now to try uh, uh, put together an archive of his works and see if we can put him, you know, if we can re-establish uh, his his status. Um, well, can I dive into that real quick? Yeah, sure, so, sure, sure, sure. Yes. What, so I I've there's a similar situation in Namibia as well, where the technical founder of the original party was slowly uh, put down in, in importance in favor of the Sam Nioma. Is it a similar story here? Where And if so, wh- how did that happen and why? So, um, and, I, you know, without knowing the, the exact parallel here, it, it yeah, yeah. sounds similar. 
because what happened is Nabaninki Stole founds the party. He is the president for a while. Robert Mugabe is a, is a firebrand speaker who is invited uh, to be in their midst. He's, he's been educated in Ghana, uh, where you know he's, he's a brilliant orator and a brilliant uh, scholar. Comes in, very charismatic. And at some point in the 1970s, there is a power grab right in which uh mugabe now becomes the the leader of the party um mm-hmm. right uh becomes the leader of the party and dawaningi insists and and as far as the the constitution quote unquote of of the of the liberation movement went uh rightfully so that he is the official president but you know but the but revolutions are revolutions, right? And by then, uh, Mugabe had caught fire. Just to clarify from that clip, because I mentioned the, the Namibia parallel, which I don't think it's actually a great parallel. I'm referring to Ndimba Toivo Toivo, who started the first kind of independence group for Namibia. But he wasn't written out of history, still very well respected. I believe he's buried in Namibia's Heroes Acre. But it was more that this other character who was a firebrand, Sam Nyoma, did end up leading, which I think is an interesting parallel that the firebrand type person ends up being the president and leader post-independence. But that's probably the main parallel between the, the two cases. I liked his, I liked his storytelling. Yeah, that, that episode was great. There's a lot of rich history throughout. Yeah. And it just doesn't get... It doesn't get reported on usually at all. And when it does, it's never usually by local voices who can uh, share the story in a way that is both like true to the source and the, and the, it's one thing for like an outsider to maybe study everything and know everything about it and then relay the information. But it's, it's something else entirely. Like he's, He's, he's like as much of a local boy as you could be, and he's very proud of it. And he knows how to tell that story to multiple different types of audiences. And it's really uh, uh, awesome. Yeah, it's admirable. And um, the ability to connect it to current events as well. Sticking with Shingi, we're going to go into a, a section leading more towards the past year and current events. and protests that happen across the world. So we're going to start by talking a little bit about how Black Lives Matter kind of builds across the world and and ended up in Zimbabwe and then turned into Zimbabwe Lives Matter, which was its own thing. So the idea really, again, and, you know, none of these things can really be divorced divorced from, of course, and the name says it, so to to the Black Lives Matter movement and in, 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 in the US that, that, that blows up after, after the, 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 the murder, frankly, of George Floyd. Um, so there's movement that, pro, you know, usually, first it was solidarity movements, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even like Black Lives Matter became a chant in Zimbabwe as well with a couple songs again coming out of that, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and so forth. Then at some point it became, well, while you are saying that, right? Um, these three women uh, who were uh, who were activists of the of the opposition party were were uh, uh, abducted 
and assaulted and then thrown in, in ditches. I'm there, thank God they are alive and, and healthy, but that happened. And clearly the cops had done it, or at least like, uh, yeah, because their cars were found at the, at the police station, uh, not very clever. Um, mm. so, so that happens, it's like, well, while we are doing that, while we are protesting this violence by the state in, 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 in the US, if you will, we have to talk about this. And then, so a, a rally was being organized for July 31st, and our journalists and other influential people, and a lot of people, uh, particularly in the urban areas, were, were mobilizing for that. And prior to that, one of the most prominent journalists who's been exposing corruption, um, uh, Hopewell Chingono, was arrested uh, together with uh, with another activist, Jacob Ngari Vume, were, were arrested on, on really trumped up charges. And they actually spent the next six weeks in, in prison, you know? Uh, and he just got out. So that really got the people riled up because that's somebody else that people had been looking to for information about, you know, he done some high-profile corruption exposés. Then when the protest actually, when the day finally came, it had been largely squashed. And it's also easy to squash it in recent times because it's, uh, they have the, the, the police and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the uh, military on the streets on the guise of, we're trying to make sure that people stay at home, uh, you know, COVID and all this. So, so some of the people were arrested on that pretext. But on July 31st, people got in the streets. 60 people are arrested, uh, including among them uh, Titi Dangarembga, who is one of Zimbabwe's most prolific writers, her book, Nervous Conditions. Um, actually, I think it was South African, uh, some South Africans who started the Zimbabwean Lives Matter, like we can't believe what's happening next door. And it, and it spread all over the place, uh, such that I was looking today when I was going over some of my notes at a, at a tweet by Ice Cube, uh, you know, American rapper Ice Cube talking about how uh, the boys in blue uh, bully people around the world, huh? Zimbabwean lives matter. So, so it blew up uh, and that, and there's been a lot of uh, conversations as well as a lot of good art again, you know, that, that came out of it, a lot of rap, music, a lot of uh, Zim dance or music, a lot of, uh, again, great conversations and programming that have come as a result of it. Yeah, I think something that uh, was really important that came out of the many protest movements that we saw over this year is, um, and we discussed this with Shingy as well in that episode, was that really the local grievances that um, that led to these protest movements versus the geopolitical understandings that were often put on them. Um, and you saw that in Zimbabwe. Um, I think he specifically brought up um, grievances related to like Western sanctions, for example. And you see this in other areas as well, like Belarus, um, this sort of placement of geopolitical understandings on these on these movements do you think do you think that um do you think next year or in let's say let's say like in two or three years these um social movements will be perceived as a like a, a very sharp blip on the radar or do you think that this is um you know, harbinger of things to come. It's interesting because you think of you think of some of the movements that end up becoming 
if not political parties, something close to it. Let's listen to Hildegard Titus in Namibia about her experience. She, she's an activist and photojournalist and she led a movement earlier this year, also kind of following the, with the Black Lives Matter and Bobby Lives Matter, um, towards the removal of a statue in the capital of Namibia of this, I don't know what his, you would describe him, but this old German guy who pretty brutally um, captured the capital city of Namibia. And so she's going through this process of trying to remove the statue and, and replace it and share the history of everything that happened. So let's listen to a clip of that. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so ultimately, um, I'm based here in Vintuk, Namibia, which is the capital. And there's been a history going around for, I guess, decades that says that the founder of Vintuk was this man called Kurt von Francois, who was like a Prussian slash German, like, military officer. And it says that he founded Vintuk in 1890, even though, like, we have, like, numerous historical evidence that says that it was actually founded by an Orlam uh, chief, maybe like 70 decades before he even got here. And um, ultimately, like in the 60s, when Namibia was going through the apartheid system, the apartheid government erected a statue of this man, Kurt von Francois, um, kind of feeding into this whole idea that, you know, he founded the city and that the city was founded by a European man and kind of like claiming ownership to like Namibia and completely isolating the black community. And, you know, this is a statue I've grown up with and the older I've gotten, the more I learned about it. And I was, I don't know, I guess it's kind of tired of glorifying colonial figures, especially super violent ones. And I thought I'd do something about it. And I think, I guess I was inspired by all the statues falling everywhere else. And I knew that I couldn't just like topple it myself also because it's like 500 kilograms. Um, so I was like, okay, let me, you know, make a petition and see what happens. And I started it and now it's, you know, it's a thing and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's getting pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, like what comes next, right? What comes next? This has been a crazy year. What comes next after, what does this culminate into? I can't speak, I don't know for other countries like Zimbabwe and others, how, what it turns into, but in the U S for sure, I think it's required by, established institutions whether it's corporations and organizations taking action which they very much are like they aren't like overnight turning over everything but um pretty much every major american institution is taking action some more minor than others and that could could have long-lasting effects if that builds momentum and it becomes a part of culture going forward but the question, you're right, like in other places where maybe there's less strength of the institutions, perhaps in Zimbabwe or other places, maybe the only way is to like, through po political power, through um, a movement in that way. Yeah, in other countries, if you don't have a long history of that, is this just going to be, uh, like, how, do, do you know how to turn that into something else? Or do you not, not necessarily know, like, do you have the other, the, the right environment to turn it into something else and keep it going? Or is it just, oh, this was the year that people were doing that thing. But 
what it turned into. Which I, I think the place to watch for that, and we discussed it with Shinya as well on his episode, um, because we also spoke with Sasha, Sasha St. John Murphy on the protests in Belarus. Um, and I think that that's a place where, Corey, you might get your answer because you sort of have this country that had many barriers to any kind of civil disobedience, protests, movements, things like that. Um, but since August, we're still seeing people out in the streets and it's been more than a hundred days of this amid increasing pressure, increasing crackdown. And you still see groups of women out with their umbrellas, with their red and white umbrellas, and they're still going at it. So, um, you know, watching that protest movement and, um, the, uh, political um, underpinnings to it um, will be will be something to watch, I think, next year. Okay, let's listen to Sasha from September. I saw they had 100,000 people out yesterday was the estimate. Uh, yeah. That's a yeah. lot of people. No, it's a, it's a huge amount. They had, um, apparently it was 200,000 on the Sunday following the election and then it was around a thousand I think for the past two weekends and so the weekends have become the the days to watch the the weekday protests are a lot smaller but there's also been a lot of protests kind of smaller more localized protests which has been really exciting to watch where you have these neighborhoods not just in Minsk but you know all over Belarus um, organizing evening meetings where they will sing and they will dance maybe they'll watch films they'll just gather and it's these protests as well, which are very effective because they're happening everywhere. So they're very hard to, for the, the police and the security services to put them down. Yeah, would you say that that's something different from protests seen in the past, is having these, these local contingents? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because before as well, the opposition movement in Belarus was always seen as something a little extreme a little nationalist, um, and a lot of people didn't want to engage with it at all. So, I mean, speaking to people before the elections, people were fairly apathetic towards Lukashenko, but they would never have associated themselves with opposition before. Um, but now, this kind of the anger that came out after the election has really united neighborhoods, which is something... Yeah, I've never seen. And a lot of them are, I actually, I met a group of people who were doing yes, these kinds of these local small protests. And they were groups of people who'd never met each other before. So they'd been neighbors for 20 years and they'd never spoken. And the events of the past month have kind of brought everybody together. And in this group I met, there was an 80 year old woman and there were kind of 20 year old students and they have you know, nothing in common <laughs> except this, they've been united by this anger at the authorities. So I think that this isn't going to go away. Um, this community spirit that's been born out of this um, is something that's very new and people are really embracing it. So I saw, I saw um, uh, Bremer posted that yesterday that he thinks that Lukashenko won and that he's going to stay in power and it's going to be fine. 
Which Did means he's that? done within the fortnight. Great call. <laughs> <laughs> nah, there's no way that guy sticks around. No way. No way. Springtime comes around. People are just going to be even more angry. They're going to be more out in the streets. The international financial organizations will have figured out their angle and like, you know, started stacking their chips where they want them to fall. He's He's already made concessions too. like, he's going to leave after like revision of the constitution, which that's something that is actionable is like a constitutional revision. Yeah, give him, he's going to want his, you know, his immunity, his billions, his family's going to be all set. And he gets to, you know, just retire. And he gets, he gets one of those titles like father of the homeland or something like that. Yeah, like he's just setting up where he's going. Okay, so we also spoke with Olga Hostinova um, on the 20 years under Putin project that uh, the Institute of Modern Russia uh, created this year. And um, so one thing specifically that we talked about, and it was a constant theme in in some of our episodes was a global Russia. Um, And this was seen in the near abroad and elsewhere. So if you judge again, from all, based on the media narratives. So just because you're calling something that you're saying this person is successful, um, we have to agree how we measure success. So if you're winning um, the debate, if you mean that success is the number of mentions in the media, then yes, Putin is successful. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely uh, true because he has sort of seized the imagination of certain people in the West, so definitely journalists. Um, by which means that's a different conversation. <laughs> but um, if we talk about global Russia, then we have to look at which other countries sort of Russia influence, right? So, okay. So Russia came back and established certain control over its former um, over former Soviet republics, right? But that was the original uh, zone of influence since the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I guess that you can call it relative success, but I think the only tr- state that truly that is truly controlled by Russia is Belarus. Okay. <laughs> um, look at Ukraine. It's not a successful case. Look at Georgia. Same thing. Kazakhstan pursues its own policy. These are the sort of the key assets. Um, the Baltic states are no longer even close to what they were in the, mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. So right. So these states are could be successful neighbors, and you know, but Russia sort of made it not even a mixed success, but it's really, it, 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 I think it's a failure. Um, then you can look at the Middle East, right? So, um, okay, so Russia came back to Syria. Mm-hmm. Syria is a failed state, let's be honest. And, you know, it's it, it, just because um, Russia had ties to Syria since the 70s, 
um, and Putin and uh, Assad um, established sort of a friendly relationship for and it lasted for 20 years and uh, Russia has a port there uh, well a little base in the port let's call it yeah. what it is um, and what Putin was successful at is calculating the exact right moment where when he could um, go in and sort of hold on to that base um, and I guess that could be a relative success and then there mm -hmm. are there are I mean there are successful relationships with other other bigger countries but they have been there in place even before Putin so Putin cannot take credit for that right so yeah. there is also uh, a relationship with North Korea or Venezuela you know these are not you know the countries you can call uh, someone you know if you're friends with them you are you, do you immediately become a success um, yeah. these are highly risky countries and maybe a success is that Putin has a line in to these people to these leaders maybe but is it a global coalition compared to something like NATO I don't think so okay. what will his title be when he when he when he does the same move in the next few years I think I think people are coming around to that that's what his move is going to be right he becomes protector of the the motherland the fatherland Motherland. I don't think he wants like a like a regal title like that. I think that he's going to go with something like, like head of the Security Council or State Council, it, it, Executive of State Council. Yeah, Chief Secretary at some like old school kind of title. Yeah. 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 So we also spoke to Jennifer Ginsburg, one of our uh, fellow uh, former uh, former fellow students um, at uh, Harriman. And uh, she's uh, an expert on the Balkans. And so we discussed Macedonia's new NATO membership this year. Um, it's uh, the membership is something that um, Macedonia, as we know, went through a name change and everything to gain. One important thing to keep in mind with the Balkans is that it truly is a multi-vector region. There are interests from the West, Russia, China, and we discussed all of this with, with Jennifer. I think in, join, in joining NATO, it's the, you have the prestige, you can do you, military trainings and exercise and equipment um, and all of that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that NATO will um, offer sort of financial aid to help them get their military up to the level that NATO would like it to be. Just being a member of this, the largest international sort of de defensive alliance, I think is it's prestigious and it's a sign that they're sort of a European country. And for NATO, I think NATO probably always would like to, to, add, to add members. Um, although I guess there, there's been division recently in NATO about sort of who, who really should be allowed in and all of that but I think I imagine at the end of the day they're they're happy for countries to still be interested in joining so I'm just going to drop something that I learned last week I didn't know Sweden is not a member of NATO did you guys yeah. know that hmm is there a reason why or 
not entirely sure why. I just I would have assumed that all of the Nordics were members. Well, I know like like Norway's not a member of the EU. Yeah. Right, I know that. Or one. the Euro or the Eurozone. Right. Or maybe they are part of the EU, but they're not part of the Eurozone or what uh, you know. I, yeah, however, they don't have the e, they don't have the Euro, yeah. Yeah. Although it looks like Sweden is trying for NATO membership. So it's not yes. like they made the decision not to. Well, that's how I learned about it because I saw an article. It was like Sweden's considering joining, and I'm like, wait, how are they not already apart? <laughs> yeah, I mean, would it have been? It wouldn't have been necessarily a policy of like neutrality during the Cold War at all, a la a la Finland. They would have been firmly in the in the side of of you know the West. That's I fascinating. I didn't know that. I guess the maybe maybe it's their imperial past. Maybe they were thinking. They still have a chance. Like a quote from a political article, the social Democrats resistance is based on a long held belief that Sweden's freedom from alliances has served the country well. So they're like the George Washington of Europe. <laughs> Explain, what do you mean? George Washington's whole thing was when he left office and he gave his uh, leaving office speech, he just said, uh, here's my big piece of advice. Don't get involved in long-term alliances. I don't know that about that part. Yeah, it's like it's that, that was his famous advice. He's like, if I've learned one thing after doing this job for eight years, here's my <laughs> here's my advice: don't enter into a long-term alliance. And the next quote is from some Swedish person: "We don't want to go down a road of security policy experiments or adventurism. That's a very dangerous position to find yourself in." So that was the, that's another critical reason why they had not. Do you um, remember when we were in when we were when we were in Estonia that the they would talk about like the various phases of who controlled the the land that is Estonia now and when they thought when they think back on certain phases they they like think fondly back and they really enjoyed the Swedish phase and they called it like the time of the good Swedish kings or something like that do you remember this uh, I don't they yeah they were just like yeah like that that whatever like the 150 years where the Swedes ruled over Livonia or uh, Raval or whatever you know whatever the kind of agglomerated area was called was uh was was fo is fondly recalled by the Estonians today as like no no the, the good Swedish kings they were cool. We had one of our most uh, exciting episodes. Maybe it was our our biggest get of the year was uh, former ambassador Ian Kelly, who came on to talk about all things uh, Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, former Soviet Union. He was uh, surprisingly candid with us, which I think was uh, the result of him being happy to maybe be out of the foreign service at this point in his career and into academia where he can speak his mind a little bit more. And he was a great guest uh, and told us a lot of great, uh, you know, brought us a lot of great insight. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, the most chilling moment I had uh, as, as the uh, co-chair is we, we met with, um, with both uh, leaderships in Yerevan and Baku several times. And uh, at one point, a very senior official um, said that uh, the... Um, uh, the economics and the demographics are in Azerbaijan's favor. That um, 
Armenia is depopulating. Its economy is not growing. Uh, this, this person said he was uh, very proud that their military budget, the military budget of Baku, was bigger than the entire state of Armenia. We know at a certain point that uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is going to fall into our hands like a ripe fruit when, we, when these various, um, uh, you know, when the, uh, as the Soviets used to say, when the correlation of forces uh, turn in our favor. So to answer your question, <laughs> I think that clearly Baku has determined that the correlation of, of, uh, of forces are in their favor now. And they're in their favor because uh, Azerbaijan has been building up its military. They, uh, the reason why they've, uh, I mean, I'm no uh, military expert, but one of the reasons why they've been successful on the, uh, uh, on the ground, as you say, they've, they've been able to take over about 10% of the occupied territories around, uh, around Nagorno-Karabakh is they have um, technology from uh, Turkey and Israel. These uh, uh, loiter Munitions or drones uh, have been able to, um, with really good precision, take out the, a lot of the heavy armor and artillery of, uh, of Ar Armenia. Um, but the other factor is Turkey. Uh, when I was in the Minsk Group, uh, when I was Minsk Group co-chair in 2013, uh, Turkey was a little... Uh, they were a little annoyed <laughs> at the lack of progress and they were insisting on having, uh, you know, a, an expanded format that would include Turkey. And um, we, uh, we listened politely and then didn't do anything. Uh, but the, 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 the big difference is the rhetoric and the, um, you know, the willingness of Turkey to back Azerbaijan as they say, all the way to, you know, for all, all appearances, they're going for a full military solution. Well, it's interesting because when we spoke with Carino, we were actually discussing an earlier conflict. Yeah, yeah, it was mm -hmm. prescient, man. Yeah. Speaking with Karina about the earlier conflict was interesting because when we speak with someone like Ian Kelly, we get a very broad overview of the geopolitical interests and um, underpinnings. And then we, we can come to someone like Karina who has an understanding of the local nuances and what's going on on the ground and the effects on people who are living in these areas. So we spoke with Karina, uh, like I said about this earlier conflict before um, the tensions rose in Nagorno-Karabakh this year. Yeah, um, I'm a little rusty on that history, but I mean, generally speaking, yeah, I mean, this was a, a region, historical region that has been important to both Armenians and Azerbaijanis. Both Armenians and Azerbaijanis have been living there for a very long time um, and have, you know, provable history going back hundreds of years. The territory was um, de facto, you know, an autonomous region of Azerbaijan during the Soviet period, um, during which time Armenians um, expressed frustration over what they perceived as sort of cultural repression. So Armenian radio stations were being, you know, slowly shut down over time. Armenian um, language school books 
were kind of being um, phased out in favor of Azerbaijani language um, textbooks. So even though the Armenian ethnic sort of residents there were numerically the majority, the, the policies from Baku were very um, sort of discriminatory in that way. So, so the frustration and sort of resentment had been building up. Um, but that's not to, you know, kind of also flatten and ignore the hundreds of years of history of Armenians and Azerbaijanis living, you know, side by side in, in peace. So, you know, let's, let's not forget that there's, there's a lot longer history of that happening than, than the clashes. But that's also not to, um, you know, play down the, the really, you know, legitimate sort of historical grievances that, that both sides have. Um, yeah, and you know, 1988 was a seminal moment in, in Azerbaijan, sorry, Armenia's independence um, process. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh had voted in a referendum to um, leave Azerbaijan, which Azerbaijan rejected. And then at the same time, you know, you have Perestroika and Glasnost and all this stuff happening. So, you know, Armenians in Armenia started marching in the streets for independence for, for Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, or actually, I think in beginning initially, it was for Nagorno-Karabakh to be joined to Armenia. Um, and then, yeah, you had, you know, that kind of mixed up in the independence movement for, for Armenia proper. Um, and then, yeah, as the Soviet Union fell, obviously, um, it, suddenly there was room for these ethnic grievances to kind of, you know, express themselves because the Soviets really did not have any mechanisms for um, this kind of conflict resolution, you know, before we got to the, the active war stage. I mean, I think looking back at, you know, doing the research, I do remember, you know, several times coming to the conclusion that actually, you know, they did have the tools to, to help resolve these issues, but they, they weren't prepared for it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So to, to synthesize all the things that we've talked about uh, in the last few months about Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, with the end of the largest fighting that's happened there in you know, 25 years or so, Azerbaijan has achieved an overwhelming uh, military victory, largely with the help of Turkey. And what remains to be seen is what what, what does that mean for the rest of the territory? Because Azerbaijan is still making statements, although the fighting is sort of stopped and we'll see what that will bring in the new year, whether there's going to be a new government in Armenia, but certainly, uh, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh will not be uh, limited just to 2020. We're going to be hearing more about that in the year to come. That's it. Yeah. That's the year. We did it, man. 30 episodes. 30 episodes in our first year. <laughs> we should be very proud. Your anniversary in January. We should be very proud. I really, I really feel very, I mean, I feel proud that we. It's cool we stuff. Stuck, we stuck with it. Yeah. yeah. And people have enjoyed it. Like we know, I, I mean, I don't know how many people, I, like I have purposefully not inquired very much about how many people listen to this shit and download because I don't want it to impact. I do this more for me, I think at this yeah. point, but I, some people are listening to it because I get comments from people who are friends of mine who I've never um, pitched it to. Like I've never like dropped it in conversation and you know, like a, a good buddy of mine, but someone who I've never mentioned it to, you know, just, just said, said it to me in passing. He was like, dude, I'm really digging the podcast. 
Mm. I was like, oh, man, thank you. Like, that's nice. So people are listening to it. People are, people are enjoying it. So let's keep it going. And any plans for the next year? Where should we go? Well, I think our first stop is going to be Kyrgyzstan. Gotta be. Mm-hmm. Elections. Yeah, there's January. cool stuff going on there. Any themes that we should be looking at for next year? They're going to come up naturally, no matter if we want them you or can't not. can't predict it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. It'd be foolish. But we definitely, we have a wheelhouse. And our wheelhouse is obviously Eastern Europe, Central Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. We haven't really touched Southeast Asia. We don't really touch Latin America very much. I want to do and more I of those things, though. Okay, yeah. I mean, I would say, I think, I think it's fine for us to not force it where it's yeah. not natural to us. But I think our strength also is in our growing uh, network of young experts, academics, professionals, whatever you want to call them, who can speak eloquently on the subjects because we can't, we're where we can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we got our little crew and our extended network. All right. So a cheers to the many unknown things that are going to happen that we're going to get to talk about with interesting people next year. Here, here. Cheers to that.